Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for coming. We are here today to celebrate and hopefully to elucidate uh, Brandon Garrett's latest book, End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. There's a table out back with the Courts and Commerce bookstore folks who are selling the book, those of you who are, whose interest is piqued by the discussion and want to get it. And I personally can guarantee that if you buy a book, Brandon will autograph it for you. The timeliness of this event uh, could not be more apt. According to Reuters News this morning, Alabama, Florida, and Texas plan to execute inmates today. And if carried out, it would be the first time in eight years that three people on death row have been executed on the same day since the death penalty was reinstated in the United States. So timely, we are timely if nothing else. In the face of such ghastly news, Brandon's book offers a degree of hope. Uh, it's, it's actually a hopeful book, not only about the death penalty, but about larger criminal justice reform uh, in the system of mass incarceration that we currently have. The book is actually three books when you read it. First part is an historical account of the decline of the death penalty. Brandon Marshall's uh, this account around case stories that are really quite moving. And, and I'm a lifelong criminal defense lawyer. I'll get moved by an ant uh, you know, coming underfoot. But when you read these case stories, it really does make you think uh, quite hard about what's happening in this death penalty aspect of our criminal justice system. The second part of Brandon's book is an analytical account of why the death penalty is in decline, why death sentences have dropped so dramatically, as pointed out in the first part of the book. Uh, this part of the book, the analytical account, is classic Brandon Garrett. If you've read his book, Convicting the Innocent, if you haven't, buy that one and read that too, and he'll autograph that too for you. Uh, he, take, he, says, he has a nice way of taking data, which might seem otherwise impenetrable, and wrapping it around these same case stories so that you see, oh, this case, this defendant was convicted, this defendant got the death penalty because of ineffective lawyering by the defense and then you'll see the data relating to those kind of statistics. Really a wonderful way Brandon has of weaving together uh, data and case stories to make them quite compelling. And then the third part of the book uh, is a philosophical account. And this, this is the part that's hopeful. Um, a philosophical account of how these factors that Brandon has analyzed in the first two parts of the book might give rise to criminal justice reform more generally. And, and really holds, I, I think, quite a amount of hope for the future. In fact, the last chapter of Brandon's book is entitled The Triumph of Mercy. He may be a little ahead of himself. I'm not sure the triumph is right. Maybe the hoped for triumph or maybe the expected triumph or I really hope we triumph, but you get the point. Um, Brandon, following in the footsteps of, of many great philosophers, including uh, Old Testament prophets, seek justice but love mercy. That's the theme of the hope. That's the theme of the end of the book. We have a really remarkable panel of experts here today to talk to you about the book, not including me. I'm not one of them. Uh, Carol Steiker is the co-director of Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program. Evan Mandery next to her is the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Robin Conrad, next in line, is the director of research and special projects at the Death Penalty Information Center. Uh, next to Robin is uh, the man who will represent me if I ever get indicted for a capital murder, David Bruck. He's the director of Washington and Lee University's Death Penalty Defense Clinic.
And then down at the end, of course, is our own notorious BLG. <laughs> We're going to let them speak in the order in which they're sitting, uh, 10 to 15 minutes each, let them all get through their presentations, and then at the end, I'll come back up and moderate some questions to the panel, and we'll take it from there. Enjoy. We'll get started with Carol Steiker. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here to talk about Brandon's excellent book, End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. I thank Steve Braga for uh, <clears throat> putting together this event and the University of Virginia School of Law for hosting it in this beautiful space. So Brandon's book is carefully researched and engagingly written it is a timely grappling with what may well be the end of days for the American death penalty. Uh, and it talks about how that end, if it comes, may connect with or even catalyze a larger movement um, to address the pathologies of the broader criminal justice system. This book, Brandon's most recent, reflects the now familiar virtues on display in his other work, especially his willingness to get his hands dirty and dig deep in the data to try to understand at a granular and empirical level the what and the why of things. In this case, the thing that, Brand that is the focus of Brandon's attention is the stunning decline in the American death penalty over the past almost two decades. Starting in 2000, the death penalty has essentially been in freefall whether one counts by death sentences, which are down around 90% from their 1996 high, or by executions, which are down by about 80% from their 1999 high, or by states authorizing the death penalty, which has declined from 38 to 31 states in that same period. This precipitous fall follows an almost equally precipitous rise after the Supreme Court's temporary abolition and reinstatement of the death penalty in 1972 and 1976, respectively. After a 10-year period in the United States without any executions at all between 1967 and 1977, executions soared in the 1980s and 1990s reaching highs that our country had not seen since the early 1950s, peaking at over 300 new death sentences a year in 1996 and nearly 100 executions a year uh, in 1999. What explains what Brandon calls the death penalty's rapid rise followed by its inexorable fall, especially the latter? That's his question. So Brandon collects the data and explores the possible influence, <clears throat> pardon me, um, of many suspects in this, in the great death penalty decline, such as the innocence revolution, the decline of crime, especially homicide rates, the rise of life without parole sentences, and the improvement in defense lawyering in capital cases. I'm going to use my time to highlight several of Brandon's findings and conclusions, both to underscore some and to raise questions about others for further discussion and debate. I'll start with three of Brandon's claims that I find utterly compelling. First, one of the most persuasive of Brandon's empirical findings is the power of improved defense lawyering 
um, in explaining the great death penalty decline, as measured by the availability of statewide capital defense resources and assistance um, in support of the kind of team defense that is most often successful in capital cases. The empirical work that Brandon undertook, along with law student Ankur Desai and research librarian Alexander Jacobo, shows a strong correlation between these statewide um, institutional supports and the decline of the death penalty. In contrast, states that rely on locally appointed lawyers without centralized standards and resources are less likely to see such strong declines. Now, the, the ABA has long advocated in its published standards for capital defense lawyers exactly the kind of resources and structure at the state level that Brandon studies. And every capital defense lawyer I know has also insisted on the importance of sort of state level institutions and support um, in um, achieving success in capital litigation. In fact, my brother Jordan Steiker and I, who write together and, and also litigate and work on law reform projects together on the death penalty, have written about precisely this. But Brandon's is the first empirical evidence that I know of to support what has been the received wisdom about statewide institutions and resources. Now, this is very important, even when studies confirm um, received wisdom, uh, because it often turns out that what everyone knows is just turns out to be wrong. Second, Brandon's empirical work educated me about a change in the locus of death penalty activity that had not really made it onto my radar. In the death penalty's heyday in the 80s and 90s, rural counties were much more likely to produce death sentences than urban ones. To give but one dramatic example, in Georgia in the 1990s, the death sentencing rate ranged from four death verdicts per thousand homicides in urban Fulton County, which is Atlanta, to 33 death verdicts per thousand homicides in rural Muskegee County, a difference of more than 700%. Today, however, Brandon demonstrates empirically that rural counties are much less likely than urban ones to return death sentences. He hypothesizes, convincingly in my view, that the vastly increased cost of capital trials, which is largely the byproduct of constitutional requirements that the courts have imposed on death penalty litigation, has made the death penalty the exclusive province of wealthy counties. Capital punishment has become not the quicker, cheaper punishment that it used to be in the past, but rather the costly, time-consuming caviar of the criminal justice system's smorgasbord. Finally, and most depressingly, Brandon documents, documents in a new way the continuing role of race in the administration of the death penalty. My brother Jordan and I wrote extensively in our own recent book on capital punishment about the long and sordid history of entwinement between race and the American death penalty. Many other empirical researchers have attempted to isolate the influence of race as a factor in the determinations of capital juries. Brandon focused on yet another confluence, the association between continued use of the death penalty at the county level and large black populations coupled with a higher percentage of white victims of homicide. However, it just wouldn't be a fun book talk if I only underscored the ways in which I agree with Brandon's findings and arguments. So I want to present three ways in which I disagree, at least to some extent, with Brandon's findings. 
and arguments. First and most narrowly, I would quibble with Brandon's claim that there does not appear to be a strong correlation between the rise of the availability of life without parole sentences and the fall of the death penalty. As Brandon notes, studies of capital jurors across a range of states reveal that jurors say over and over again that they're much less likely to vote for a death sentence when they know that there will be a life without parole sentence, when the defendant will really spend the rest of his or her days in prison. Um, but Brandon's study, which looks at whether death penalty declines are correlated with legislative adoption of LWAP, finds only a very weak correlation. He thus concludes that the rise of LWAP, that's what we in the biz call it, quote, is clearly not the only or even an important driver of the death penalty decline. But I think Brandon's study may under, understate the impact of LWAP sentences because it's pegged to the date of legislative adoption uh, of LWAP rather than to any attempt to measure when jurors became aware that life means life. There are numerous studies that show that jury, jur, many jurors continue to be unaware of what a life sentence really meant, even after the passage of LWAP. Indeed, there's a series of Supreme Court cases in which litigators argued to the court that they should have a right, capital defense lawyers wanted to be able to tell the jurors that um, a life sentence meant life and that the defendant really wouldn't get out. Um, but the Supreme Court didn't adopt that rule until a South Carolina case called Kelly versus South Carolina. So if you look just, I, I, I had to, this is the only slide, it's your only visual of all the speakers, that's why I'm first, because I'm the only one with a slide and I only have one, so enjoy it. Um, but Brandon's book, if you read it, you'll see it's full of charts and graphs, so I just felt like I had to use one. So I'm using South Carolina as an example. South Carolina adopted LWAP in 1995. And you'll see there was a drop in 1995 in death sentences, but then there were a couple of peaks after that. If you were measuring whether, if you were trying to see whether there was a correlation between the adoption of LWAP and the decline of the death penalty, you might find that there wasn't because it didn't drop for a little while. But what was the date of the Supreme Court case, Kelly versus South Carolina, that said that defense lawyers have a right to tell jurors that life means life. It was 2002. Now look at the decline. From 2002 on, the death penalty does its big, sharp drop. So I wonder, you know, that's just one way to measure whether jurors knew about it. So I'm, I think a study that's pegged merely to the passage of um, LWAP is unlikely to be um, reflective of what jurors actually think and know, and therefore may well understate um, the importance of LWAP in powering this decline. Now second, and more broadly, I wish I could say otherwise, but as Steve indicated, the triumph of mercy, I'm less convinced that we have already won the death penalty war, war that the people have spoken, as Brandon would have it, Yes, there's been a stunning nearly two-decade fall in capital punishment in the U.S. by any measure, but the year 2016 
saw a Nebraska referendum that reinstated the death penalty in that state by a substantial margin to override a legislative abolition, the defeat of a, cap of a California proposition to end the death penalty, also by referendum, and, uh, and the, uh, the passage of a ballot measure in Oklahoma protecting the death penalty against constitutional abolition by the Oklahoma courts. And 2017 saw a national uptick in both death sentences and executions, as well as some substantial activity toward reinstatement in New Mexico and Delaware, which were two of the recent abolitionist states, and along with Iowa. Not to mention, a new federal government administration strongly supportive of capital punishment. And I would, Steve, you stole my thunder. I was going to point out that tonight, three people are sentenced to be executed for the first time. That The news report that I read said it was the first time since 1999. So you said eight years. Yeah. Well, whatever. It's, it's, it's another, it's a moment. So. It suggests that the, that the death penalty is withering on the vine narrative, um, or even the death penalty, we should work toward the death penalty withering on the vine as a strategy, seems to me more of a tenuous and reversible uh, narrative or strategy than Brandon suggests. My brother Jordan and I argue in our own book that federal constitutional abolition is the only plausible and sustainable way to achieve nat nationwide abolition. The federal constitution could play the role in preventing backsliding um, from abolition that the EU currently plays in Europe. Inclusion in the European Economic Union requires all member states to adopt Protocol 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights and therefore not to have the death penalty except in wartime. Poland, which just, it's like the Alabama of the European Union, has often been tempted to bring back the death penalty, but leaders have explicitly said, we'd love to bring back the death penalty, but we'd have to leave the European Economic Union, so we won't. Um, so I think federal constitutional abolition is a better strategy, and also I think a more likely path to a true end to the American death penalty. Finally, third, and most broadly, I'm also less optimistic that the end of the death penalty will prove to be an unmitigated boon for the, for the larger movement to address mass incarceration and other injustices in the broader cap, uh, criminal justice system. One reason that I'm more skeptical is the abolition, the abolition of capital punishment would also eliminate the powerful spotlight the capital cases shine on the workings of the criminal justice system. The severity and irrevocability of death naturally evokes heightened concerns about the possibility of unfairness and miscarriages of justice in capital cases. Combine those concerns with the high drama of capital cases from initial crime reporting through trial and execution, and the result is public and media attention to problems in the criminal justice system that might otherwise fly below the radar of public attention. Courts, too, currently give disproportionate consideration to generally applicable legal issues in the context of capital cases, issues that might not otherwise make it onto discretionary cert dockets uh, in non-capital contexts. Thus, far from catalyzing reform of the non-capital criminal justice system, 
The end of the death penalty might simply make reform seem less necessary and injustices less dramatic and, and, and disturbing. Indeed, I'd go so far to say, in fact, I think I did say this in my book, um, that criminal justice reformers might actually have some reason to mourn the loss of the death penalty's compelling power to command the bright spotlight of public attention. And in addition, and in conclusion, I'm gonna, this is my last point, um, <clears throat> addressing the problems of the death penalty is relatively easy. Just end it. But no one seriously suggests that we can do the same with the entire criminal justice system. It's the difference between dealing with stopping smoking and dieting. With smoking, you can just kick the habit, cold turkey. But with dieting, you still need to eat. And that raises all kinds of questions about how much food and what kind. Incarceration, it's more like food. Every society needs some level of imprisonment to deter crime and incapacitate dangerous offenders. And there remains wide disagreement about what is a healthy diet of incarceration or what our goal weight should be. I would love to think, as Brandon does, that the end of the death penalty would catalyze improvements in the broader criminal justice system, but I'm not so sure. I hate to end there on such a downer, but I'd love to hear more from others and perhaps be convinced that I'm wrong. I'd like nothing better than for Brandon to be right about this. And I thank him for his extremely engaging book. This is sad. There's a, I'm reminded of a moment, you won't know this, but uh, Robert Frost spoke at John Kennedy's inauguration and he wrote a poem which he couldn't read. And I'm about to get my first pair of bifocals and I'm staring at what I wrote and I realize that I actually can't read it. And then uh, the death penalty scholars will know this. There's a um, revered figure in the death penalty universe named David Baldus who I got to speak at John Jay and he actually used to have um, but almost binoculars, which he would speak with, uh, speak with, and now I'm wishing that I had those. Um, Steve, thanks so much for organizing this. Um, it's a privilege for me to be here. For those of you who are outside the capital universe, capital punishment uh, scholarship universe, Carol and her aforementioned brother Jordan are individually and collectively uh, the most important uh, scholars in this area of jurisprudence. In their own uh, book, which was published uh, a little more than a year ago, is magnificent. The Death Penalty Information Center is the most important uh, non-academic collector and purveyor of information about the death penalty. And if you don't know who David is, seriously, you should quickly Google him. He's one of my heroes. Um, you actually won't believe his life when you read it. So um, sometimes, despite the best effort of authors, um, we glean insight into who they are from their work, little flashes of the people behind the scholarship and um, it's not possible to read End of Its Rope without connecting to its author. Brandon's honesty and fundamental decency shines through on every page, as does the clarity of his thought and the agility of his mind. A law professor who's facile with logarithms, that is something to truly celebrate. End of Its Rope is a significant scholarly achievement, and I'm pleased to be able to toast it with you today with um, members Mark Purified Water. Um, of the many things um, to commend about the book, um, I'd like to focus on two, and they're a bit related. Um, the first is the way Brandon implicitly deals with the death is different argument. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with this, I'll, I'll just say a word about 
how this is oriented, but since the 1960s when the NAACP Legal Defense Fund took up the cause of constitutional abolition, um, its official position and, and more or less the unofficial official position of the abolitionists community generally has been that death is categorically different from other types of punishment. And, and that was a decision that they made for a strategic reason, um, which you could imagine in arguing to uh, the, the Supreme Court for abolition, that it would just be uh, too revolutionary uh, to take the position that um, the death penalty and all of the problems with racism and arbitrariness were themselves, which are obviously related to problems generally with the criminal justice system, that they were really launching a broadside attack on criminal justice in the United States. Um, and so the LDF took a position that it was different. So Tony Amsterdam, who's the most famous lawyer in this universe, told Harry Blackman, in an argument on Fowler versus North Carolina, I think there is a constitutional difference between capital and non-capital cases. The death penalty is unique, not only in the law under Furman, the seminal case, but in fact. Um, so LDF was offering the court a limiting principle as a strategic choice. Uh, another famous death penalty lawyer, Michael Meltzner, wrote, as difficult as it would be, uh, as would be a decision that flew in the face of popular hostility to abolition, the fallout would be small in comparison with the vituperative response to a decision that undermined the sense of safety conveyed by the entire criminal law, what Carol was alluding to earlier. Even in McCleskey versus Kemp, the case in which LDF um, squarely addressed, tried to get the court to reconcile with <coughs> racism in capital sentencing, LDF stuck to the death is different limiting principle. But, would any of us really think that justice had been done if Furman had stuck, um, but the issues that concerned the court there had never been redressed in the criminal justice system writ large? Do we really think that those problems rise to a constitutional dimension in the context of the death penalty, but not with finite punishments? As Brandon shows, the problems that infect capital sentencing infect the entire criminal justice system. Racism, the arbitrary exercise of power by rogue prosecutors, unreliable evidence, the poor mental health of defendants, bad lawyering. In some cases, the pro problems are significantly more acute outside of the death penalty context. If we know of a commonsensical ameliorative measure, such as videotaping of confessions or defense teams, doesn't a defendant facing a life sentence have an equal claim on its protection as someone facing the death penalty? For too long, our abolitionist liberals' answer has been that death is different and to leave it at that, rather than to deal with the full implications of the problems the abolitionist community has identified. And is death truly different in kind? Um, it's true we can't restore an executed person to life, but is there any sense in which we can make whole a person who has wrongfully spent 20 or 30 years in prison? Those are irreversible sentences too, I think. Brandon's honesty compels him to reject the death is different argument. He calls the push to broaden LWAP sentencing a devil's pact, which it is, and we demand that we treat the death penalty, he demands that we treat the death penalty as a lens through which to view the problems with criminal justice writ large, rather than an outlier to be dealt with as an idiosyncrasy or an artifact. We all know that the death penalty is one symptom of a systemic wasting disease. Consciously or unconsciously, uh, consciously I think, and, and this is um, what I wanna say, uh, my conceptualization of what Brandon's trying to do is he's trying to begin a new conversation about the death penalty uh, and being here at uh, University of Virginia, I can't help but think about with whom we communicate and exactly what we're trying to do. Um, we, um, this is very pleasant, um, some of us speak on panels, uh, and we almost always speak to audiences and colleagues uh, who are like-minded. Um, 
as a teacher, I would be delighted if one of you came and stood up and spoke very passionately in favor of capital punishment. It is statistically almost certain that none of you um, will actually think that or feel empowered enough to do that if you do. But it would be great from a classroom standpoint, the more diversity of opinion that we have, the better. But most often, I mean, when you talk about echo chambers in the United States, there probably is no echo chamber so resonant as the academic community. We all agree uh, about the death penalty and whatever Carol just, whatever nitpick she just picked with Brandon's argument, you can sense that they're on the same general page in terms of sentiment and where they think that things should go. Um, but so we all agree, and this is probably true of other issues, this, the death penalty is like global warming. In the academic community, the debate is entirely settled. The death penalty as practiced in the United States doesn't accomplish anything. Um, we could sit in a class and we might and debate whether the death penalty might be deserved for Hitler, um, the most uh, heinous of genocidal maniacs where we're completely certain about, um, where we're completely certain about uh, guilt. But as a practical matter, right, that has nothing to do with the death penalty as practiced regularly. There's nothing left to discuss. Uh, I don't think uh, a serious uh, legal scholar would dispute even one of Brandon's central premises, nor would any serious criminologist dispute Brandon's claims regarding prisonization and reentry. And what I just want to take two minutes, three minutes to ask you about is how we begin to communicate this to the outside world because I think Brandon is sort of suggesting that we begin to do something differently. So I said a moment ago that being at UVA makes me think to begin about how we reassess our own project. I don't know if any of you have ever um, read or taken a class with your colleague Jonathan Haidt, um, whose book, um, The Righteous Mind, and when I went through my list of books to try to understand what was happening in America post-election, uh -huh. Excuse me, this was the one that did more for me and changed my thinking about the world than any other. Um, Haidt says that there basically are five or possibly six foundations that inform our moral intuition. One is care and harm. The other is fairness and cheating. The third is loyalty and betrayal. The fourth is authority and subversion. The fifth is sanctity and degradation. And the sixth is liberty, freedom from oppression. And. Um, um, when Steve opened his um, comments by saying, hey, I can empathize with anything. I worry about the ant underfoot. I sat there and I think to myself, my little daughter is in the back. She knows it. We've worried about those ants, right? <laughs> and I actually can get really upset thinking about the ants. And, and the truth is, and I don't make me assert this as a value judgment, that there are, when you divide the country, divide people in many different ways, left and right in, in the United States, actually, they're different. That empathy, that instinctual empathy, empathy you have is actually, he would argue, almost a genetically programmed difference that you have. So it is true um, that liberals care more about care and fairness. But it is not fair to say and not true to say that conservatives don't care about those things. The fact is that conservatives care about all five or six of those moral foundations. They weight them a little bit differently than we do. And it makes these conversations um, very difficult. Um, I think hate's work has strategic implications for criminal justice reformers and really shows another angle on the value of Brandon's work. Um, so for example, three strikes laws, if you don't like them, right, and you're on the left, probably one of the things that strikes you as just sort of superficially silly about them is how dogmatic and rule-based they are. Um, and they seem sort of silly to me too. Um, 
and we would all, many of us would feel the same way about mandatory sentencing or effectively mandatory death sentencing. But that's because obedience to authority doesn't register with our intuition. So arguing that retribution or legalism is silly or philosophically unsound just isn't going to get us anywhere in conversations where we're not speaking with like-minded people. Much more fruitful would be, and has been, as Brandon points out, to show the unfairness of the death penalty, its human cost on the wrongfully convicted, and the wisdom of ameliorative measures, such as, he says, videotaping confessions and good lawyering. Um, because those concerns about fairness do register for conservatives, um, and understanding that helps makes it possible to understand how, understanding that helps make it possible to understand a seeming contradiction like Texas, which Brandon mentions in the book, which is at the same time extraordinarily punitive and actually also an outlier in compensation of the wrongfully convicted and um, attempts to identify um, people who have been convicted on the basis of um, poor evidence. Um, we all know the problems of bias dissimulation. People interpreted data um, to coincide with their pre-existing um, beliefs. I see Brandon's book as a bellwether of a new, more honest conversation, not just about the fatal flaws with capital punishment, but what those flaws um, say about criminal justice in America and how we begin the difficult work of addressing those problems while at the same time preserving the confidence of all Americans in the criminal law. Um, this is truly a significant scholarly achievement, and I'm very, very pleased, uh, regardless of the merits of what I said about my formulation of his project, I'm very pleased uh, to have the opportunity to be able to celebrate it with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to be here um, amongst great scholars. I am not an academic. Um, I work at the Death Penalty Information Center, and I'm a rule follower. And Steve asked to give a little bit of our background before we, before we speak. So just by way of introduction, um, I've been with the Death Penalty Information Center for a year and a half as their director of research and special projects. Before that, I was a capital litigator, and I represented people who were um, facing the death penalty in their final federal habeas appeals and did a lot of litigation during um, execution warrant-related litigation. So what I'm focusing on today um, with regard to Brandon's book is specifically the discussion of the execution decline. And, you know, because the Death Penalty Information Center is a fact-based center, I did a quick look on our website. Uh, we did an analysis to see when the last time that three executions were in fact carried out on a single day, and it was January 7th, 2010. Um, Louisiana, Ohio, and Texas. So right now, um, I'm talking about the execution decline, which is a bit ironic since we're having three executions scheduled today, tonight, although one of them Hopefully, we'll have a stay, um, a, a commutation, because the governor has has a recommendation for clemency in front of him right now. So, before I start talking about the execution decline and the chapter regarding how executions have in fact declined, I want everybody in the room to understand that 
the majority of death sentences do not result in executions. And this is something that Brandon points out in the book. Um, but let me say that again. The majority of death sentences do not result in executions. So over the period of 40 years between 1973 and 2013, the death sentences that were imposed, only 16% resulted in executions. 40% of those were reversed on appeal. Nearly 400 prisoners had their sentences commuted. And over 150 people were exonerated. So it's important to let that sink in and see how many people have been exonerated off of death row. And what that means is an exoneration is a finding that you are not guilty of the crime for which you were convicted and sentenced to death. So for every nine people that have been executed, there has been one that has been exonerated. And Brandon points out in the book that the ratio is even higher in Louisiana. Um, in Louisiana, there's one exoneration for every three executions that have occurred. And innocence is a big issue, and it's an issue that comes up all the time when we're talking about the death penalty. And the question arises, have we executed an innocent person? And in his book, Brandon says, absolutely, we have. And that's a question that we get a lot at the Death Penalty Information Center. And in the modern era of the death penalty, there has been no court finding uh, that somebody who has been executed has been found innocent. But there have been numerous cases and studies that um, have been done posthumously to demonstrate that we have, in the United States, in fact, executed innocent people. So let's talk about the reality of executions when and if they occur. Um, as Carol mentioned, there was a peak in executions in 1999. The United States saw the highest number of executions during the modern era of the death penalty. Um, we had 98 executions that year, which is about almost two executions per week. But since then, we've seen a fairly um, steady decline. <coughs> with, um, in 2009, we had 52 executions. Just last year, that number was less than half at 23. Um, there's a few things that, that Brandon looks at when looking at the execution decline. And one of the things that is important to look at is geography. Geography is important to look at generally when we're talking about the death penalty and what it means today. But fewer states are carrying out executions. So 31 states have the death penalty. Of those 31 states, 11, or 35%, have not carried out an execution in at least 10 years. So there's 35% of states that say they have the death penalty, but they're not actually executing. And 16 states, or just a little over half, have not carried out an execution in the last five years. So the use of the death penalty, in particular with executions, is a very small um, amount of states that are doing this. So what, in preparing for this book discussion, I looked at the last past five years and, and to see how many executions there have been and what states were carrying them out. So there's been 145 executions over the last five years. Three-fourths, over three-fourths of those executions have been carried out by only four states. 
Texas, Florida, Missouri, and Georgia. So they account for the majority of executions that are being carried out. And one of the things that's also important to note and that Professor Garrett mentions in his book is that the death penalty, we can't think about the death penalty as the United States has the death penalty or even a state has the death penalty, but it's so specific by county. Um, and in 2013, before I was with the Death Penalty Information Center, we published a report called the 2% Report. And we looked at everybody who was sentenced to death at that point in time, and also everybody who had been executed at that point in time. And what we found was that over half, so 52% of the executions that had been carried out up until 2013 were carried out by only 2% of the counties. That's why we called the report the 2% report. And what, what Brandon notes in the book and what has been the trend that we've seen is that a smaller number of counties are the ones that are responsible for the death sentences and executions. But in going along with the theme of the death penalty decline and executions in decline, Harris County, Texas. Harris County, Texas is where Houston is, and it is the county that is the biggest executor of any other county and any other state outside of Texas. So Harris County, Texas literally has executed more people from that county than any other state besides Texas. But in talking about the decline, we saw for the very first time last year in 2017, Harris County had no new death sentences and had no executions from that county. It did, however, have several uh, Supreme Court cases where death sentences <coughs> were reversed. One of the other factors uh, that Brandon points out that we cannot get away with when we're, when we're talking about the death penalty, and in particular, looking at who has been executed, is the race of the victim. So again, I took a look at who's been executed over the last five years, and only, there's been 145 executions, and in only 25 of those cases was there at least one black victim. But in those 25 cases where there's been executions for somebody other than a white victim, there were also eight cases where there were white victims as well. And Brandon calls this the White Lives Matter effect. Um, we have seen time and time again that studies show that the victims, when the victims are white, there's a greater likelihood that somebody will be facing a death sentence. For the first time ever in Florida in 2017, the state executed a white person for the death of a black person. That had never happened in the modern era, and we have, we have the data for the modern era, and I can probably guarantee that it never happened before the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. <clears throat> so in reality, if you get a death sentence, you are most likely not going to get executed. But there have been executions, and there continue to be executions. So I want to talk for a minute about what happens once um, an execution has been scheduled and what we've seen and how it, how it goes with the theme of the 
decline of executions. So in 2017, states scheduled 81 execution dates. 58 of those dates, over 70% were never carried out. Now, for the reasons for this, some of them, uh, execution dates get scheduled prematurely. So states will set a date even though the prisoner still has the right to, to go through additional appeals. Um, sometimes they get rescheduled. We did see a few commutations last year, but we've also seen stays of executions. And we've seen stays for reasons such as DNA evidence, forensic evidence that's, that's being challenged, competency issues, um, reasons related to Supreme Court cases that have come down. Um, and although this is a topic that, that Brandon discusses, we have seen fewer stays related to lethal injection. But we cannot talk about executions and the execution decline and the trends we've seen over the last decade without talking about what's going on regarding lethal injection and what's going on with the death penalty. And Brandon spends some time in the book talking about botched executions and the problems that we've seen with the different drug formulas. So I'm just gonna take a few minutes and give some background and try to shed some light on, on what's going on um, big picture with regard to lethal injection. And um, for those of you who, who don't follow this, like some of us, probably me and three other people know that much about lethal injection. So in, in 1982, the first lethal injection was carried out in the United States. And it was, a, it was a drug formula, it was a three drug formula. The first drug was a drug called sodium thiopental and states started using that. And, and for decades, states used this three drug formula. Everybody um, used it. There were some challenges here and there, but for the most part, that's how we carried out executions. And there was no, there, there were a few challenges, as I said, but, but it wasn't an issue. They could get the drugs, those were the drugs they used. And in 2009, there was a manufacturing problem at the plant who, of the company, Hospira, who manufactured the drug sodium thiopental. So what happened, the company decided to leave the market. It was an older drug. Um, they didn't get a lot of money from this drug. There were new drugs that had replaced it in hospitals, and they didn't want to be involved in supplying drugs to kill people. Um, so, so this happened, um, it came to light in, in 2010 in a case in Ohio, and what ended up happening after this was states were trying to get drugs from other sources, often illegally. Um, you had the states doing one thing, you have pharmaceutical companies who react they don't want their drugs being used in executions. They put distribution controls in place. So they say, we don't want our salespeople selling to departments of corrections for executions. States are using back channels to get drugs. They're selling, um, trading with each other, paying for cash. They're going to compounding pharmacies. They're going to anybody who will sell them the drug on the black market. They begin experimenting with new drug formulas. And all this is happening at the same time that prisoners and the public want to know what's going on, and they're hiding it. 
At the same time, the states also over the last several years have been passing secrecy laws. And so those laws that the legislatures in each state have passed, and it's been over a dozen that have, have passed these laws, say we're not disclosing the source of the drug. We're not disclosing really much of anything about the execution, who's involved in it, what their qualifications are, where we're getting these drugs. Um, so we see this happening, um, which, which it's a, there's a lot of different things going on, and, and people are reacting. So you've got prisoners who are bringing lawsuits. You have media outlets, reporters, members of the public who are also suing and saying, we have a right to know. We have a right to discuss the death penalty. Um, and, and what ultimately culminated that, that got a lot of news and press and resulted in a case before the Supreme Court, um, in which I was counsel of record, was a botched execution in Oklahoma using a new drug formula. And the, there were, that, that particular execution presents a story, and, and Brandon mentions this in his book, that kind of shows all of the problems that were happening and what was going on with executions. And you have a, a new drug protocol. The people who were at the prison didn't know what was going on. You had secrecy issues being raised. There was political maneuvering going on between the governor and the courts. And ultimately, they scheduled two executions on one night, which Oklahoma had never done. This resulted in just so many problems at the execution. The normal physician executioner wasn't available. They had a stand-in. They didn't have the right equipment, the right size tubing, the right size needles. Nobody knew what was going on. The, one of the execution team members called it an atmosphere of apprehension and a clusterfuck. Um, those were descriptions of the execution. What ended up happening was Mr. Lockett had um, been found to be unconscious from the first drug, and he woke up, and he started writhing and and um, you know moving against the gurney, and then they closed the curtains, and the witnesses were told the execution was stopped. Um, he died after 43 minutes, and that ultimately led to um, a case before the Supreme Court and other, other people challenging that particular drug protocol. Now, uh, the reason why I want to tell you this background and why I think it's important in thinking about the death penalty decline and executions decline is that it, it's not just the litigation and lawsuits themselves that have resulted, I, I think, in the decline of executions. It's the narrative that goes along with this information because people begin to see, oh my gosh, what's going on? We keep seeing these botched executions. And I, and I, I think that it's disingenuous to call them botched anymore because states are using the same drug formula with a drug that most experts agree is not going to do what they want it to do, but instead will result in gasping, coughing, um, unable to um, get sedated. And we've seen this repeatedly over and over again. Um, in Arizona, it took two hours to execute a prisoner, and he just gasped and gasped and gasped. And they, they keep using these drugs that they know this is what their reaction is going to be. So I say all this, it's way of background of, this has changed the narrative, and what it has done is 
has resulted in states putting executions on hold. And so in Arizona, that had a, a two-hour execution in 2014, and in Oklahoma, that had the, the completely awful execution in 2014, Oklahoma's only carried out one execution since that time, and they don't have a lethal injection protocol in place. Arizona has not carried out an execution um, since 2014. Other states have, governors have imposed moratoria in part because of lethal injection. There has been uh, the narrative with President Obama and his, um, the former Attorney General saying we need to look into this. And so I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing this decline in executions. Um, there are people who could be executed if there was a way in which states could carry out executions. But right now, we're just not seeing that. Now, that's not to say, I, I do agree that there is a decline, and obviously the numbers show that. But what that means and where we go from here is that there are states that still want to execute the prisoners. Um, we saw last year Arkansas scheduled eight executions within 11 days. Um, and that was because one of the drugs they had was going to expire. Uh, Tennessee has just asked to set eight execution dates before the end of June. So at this point, we're, we're kind of at that crossroads where um, there could be further decline in executions, but there may not be, and we may see a, a, an increase. But overall, we're seeing lower death sentences, and because there's a lag in time for 15, 20 years, uh, we're, we're way behind. So, so the people who are being executed were sentenced to death in the 90s, um, and, and so that's kind of where we are. And so overall, I do agree, um, and I think that, that Brandon's book presents um, really relevant information, especially with regard to executions and where we're at. But um, I remain hopeful, although I do think that we could certainly see an uptick of, of executions if states figure out how to actually carry out executions. Thank you. Well, I'd also like to express my appreciation. I'm David Bruck, um, and um, I come over here from Washington and Lee and really appreciate this, um, having this chance to um, reflect on and um, talk about Brandon Garrett's wonderful book, which is really, um, along with everything else he has written, just such a model of engaged scholarship. Um, this is, um, his work is the antidote to everything that ever gets written about legal academic writing. Um, really, he just he asks all the interesting questions. Um, he has a, a wonderful sense of what the facts are that could be brought to light that no one has done the hard work to find yet. He goes out with his uh, crew and finds them and then assembles them with such passion and um, smarts, and this little book about the death penalty is really just a, um, just a jewel. Um, 
I would like to uh, comment on a few things from the other end of the pipeline. My career, I've been a public defender of one sort or another and then a clinical director for 42 years. Um, and um, have been working on death penalty cases for nearly 40. Um, the way that started was that in 1980, I found myself as an ex-public defender in South Carolina and thought I will set myself up as the state's expert on how to defend death penalty cases. I had never defended a death penalty case, but neither had anybody else, so, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that was pretty much the state of play uh, at the beginning of this um, experiment that we have been in, in um, uh, keeping the death penalty going at an era when virtually all of the democratic world was abolishing it and now already has, except for us, and to be accurate, except for some remaining hot spots within the United States. It's wrong to say that the United States is a death penalty country. There are just the picture is like a forest fire in, that has been largely brought under control, but there are still hot spots flaring up. Those are the, those are the 2% of the counties where you still have death sentences. Um, but um, I want to comment on a, on a couple of things uh, from, from Professor Garrett's book. Um, the um, one is, to bring this, to connect this with, with Robin's comments, Robin, and by the way, she's too modest. She referred vaguely to the case, uh, to, to this, all of this le le lethal injection <laughs> business finally finding its way to the Supreme Court. That was Robin Conrad who argued that case, um, the Glossop versus Gross, which was just an enraging and heartbreaking refusal of a small, of a narrow majority on the Supreme Court to face facts and face reality. And, <coughs> and uh, recognize what is actually happening in the death chambers in this country. And it's not gonna be the last word on that subject. Um, but um, Robin is talking about the cases that were put into the death pipeline in the 1980s and 1990s. Some of them, believe it or not, in the 1970s and are still being litigated. People have been on death row for more than four decades they have turned from 20-year-olds into 60-plus-year-olds while waiting to be executed. Um, that's the system we have, um, with the result that, of course, the people that are coming out of the pipeline bear no resemblance to who they were when they were put in. Um, they also bear no resemblance, their cases bear no resemblance to the kind of cases that get the death penalty today because the standards have changed. And you look at these cases and you think, that guy got the death penalty, but it was 1980 when he did, or 1985, or 1987. Um, and they are artifacts of an earlier age uh, in which the standards have changed. Um, but the people that were the lottery losers back then are still on death row. And now the fight is about how to go about executing them. The, um, the number of executions, therefore, is a lagging indicator of how the death penalty is doing in the United States. It's a reflection <laughs> of the decisions that were being made 20, 25, 30, and even 40 years ago about who deserved to die and who deserved not to. The leading indicator, I think it's fair to say, are the number of new death sentences being imposed. And there, the change is absolutely spectacular. Um, Robin talked about a, a 
dropped from close to 100 executions in, in one year in the late 90s down to around 30, uh, more, more uh, 20, I'm sorry, more recently, um, which is a very large drop. But in the number of new death sentences, what we're seeing is a drop from over 300 in the late 1990s to around 30 new death sentences in the whole country, um, a 90% drop. Um, and that gives you, those are decisions that are being made by prosecutors and juries now. So that really gives you a window on where this argument, where this struggle stands today. Um, Brandon Garrett's book talks uh, really very interestingly uh, and um, sheds great light on the defense lawyering effect as an explanation, uh, the um, creation of expert um, uh, statewide defender organizations to provide adequate representation, and surely this is a large part of the explanation for this dramatic uh, drop. Um, but if you read the book and, and some descriptions of, of, of uh, capital cases in recent years that were tried right, you might imagine that uh, nowadays, with all these this uh, expertise and resources brought to bear, that we usually win the cases, and juries usually vote for life, and that's not what's happening. Um, we lose more cases than we win today when we go to trial, but that's the thing. We don't go to trial anymore. Um, there have been, by my count, five cases that have gone before a jury in Virginia on the issue of life or death in the last decade in the entire Commonwealth of Virginia, and this is the second most executing state in the country. Uh, what accounts for that? The cases settle. The decisions for life are not being made by juries, they're being made by prosecutors. These cases are being pled. Now that does not mean that the um, Professor Garrett's theory of the defense, the importance of adequate defense, um, uh, is not accounting for this tremendous drop-off. Uh, what it means is that, that adequate defense uh, representation results in plea bargains, results in negotiation. Uh, it results in lawyers who know that this is how you serve, you save lives. You get the prosecution to choose life and you get your own client to choose life, um, to offer a, a life-saving plea bargain, which is no small task. Um, and it, it involves a different concept of representation uh, than we brought to this issue um, 40 years ago or 30 years ago or even 20 years ago when there were many, many more death sentences, many, many more cases going to trial. When you put an aggravated murder before a jury, the, risk, the chances are quite high. That jury does not know about the other 100 cases that didn't get death. They see the, they react to the facts of the crime um, and um, they're asked whether they identify more with the defendant or with the grieving family of the victim. It's an easy choice. Uh, and the uh, risk, even today, of the death penalty is quite, is quite high. Um, the other reason why prosecutors settle so many of these cases rather than bring them to trial, part of the reason is that they are given the opportunity by the defense, part of the reason is that they know they have a hell of a fight on their hands if they go to trial, even if in the end they uh, manage to win and then launch a 20 or 30 year appellate uh, review. Um, but it's also that the entire political uh, atmosphere has changed. The death penalty has largely run out of political gas in this country, and has for a while. And some of the things that have been talked about today, the 
the innocence revolution, the discovery that uh, innocent people are in fact convicted and sentenced to death in this country, um, that has gotten around. And in fact, I think the public probably thinks it happens more often than it <coughs> probably does, although the spooky thing is we don't know how often it happens. Um, the um, lethal injection sagas, one after another, this, the whole reputation of the death penalty is going down. And that is reflected by the fact that it, prosecutors no longer feel like they're going to get voted out of office for not for settling a case. Um, it's true of politicians. In 1988, a question during a presidential debate was the climax of the Dukakis-Bush presidential election when Dukakis bobbled the question and his campaign never recovered. In 2004, John Kerry was a lifelong abolitionist. He was prepared to make an exception that year for Osama bin Laden, but he had a long record of being a death penalty abolitionist, and the subject never came up. And what does that tell you? It tells you that uh, President Bush's brain trust, Karl Rove, knew that the issue had already become a losing issue, that you would lose as many, as many votes as you gained by raising it. Gettysburg on this issue, I think, was the election the next year, right here in Virginia, when uh, Tim Kaine uh, and Jerry Kilgore ran uh, for governor. And Kilgore made the decision to try to put the death penalty front and center in his campaign. And it not only didn't work, but the polling indicated that it backfired. And you don't see that anymore. People don't run on this issue anymore. It is done. And that, in turn, is reflected by the latitude that, um, that uh, prosecutors have to settle these cases, as they almost invariably do in this, uh, in this state. Um, so the, de the defense lawyering effect, yes, it's important, but it's complicated. And it's all mixed in um, with, uh, with a political change, which um, is it's a complicated business to understand. One other comment I'd like to make, and this has to do with a problem um, in sort of the looking at the end of this process and how the death penalty is finally, how the United States is finally going to um, join the rest of the Western democracies uh, by abolishing capital punishment. And that is the federal death penalty, um, which is something that I have worked on in my um, second shift job for about 20 something years now as a consultant for federal defenders around the country facing the federal death penalty. The federal death penalty is tiny. It always has been in our country. It is um, an interstitial, uh, you know, federal criminal jurisdiction has always been a very small part of the criminal just justice system as a whole. Basically, violent crime has been handled by the states ever since the founding of the United States. Um, and, um, but the federal death penalty has been with us ever since 1790. Uh, it's and it has been steadily expanding uh, or steadily expanded during the 80s and 90s when uh, crime bill after crime bill uh, was irresistible temptation for federal politicians uh, in Congress. And now we have a modest um, pileup of about 60 plus people on the federal death row, which is located in um, in. Uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. There have not been any actual executions for some of the reasons that Robin talked about since uh, 2003. Uh, but we now have a, a uh, administration that probably uh, has, will have no great hesitation about trying to get them started. Um, and when the day comes that um, 
that Carol Steiker talked about that the issue is finally placed before the Supreme Court in terms of how we now have we now reached the, the point at which it must be said that the Eighth Amendment um, forbids the execution, uh, the, the carrying out of the death penalty as a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, however many states have abolished it, the fact that the entire country retains the death penalty under federal law is a serious problem. Um, now the truth is that it is purely symbolic that people vote for the death penalty in Congress. Nobody expects there's going to be any appreciable number of federal executions. It's sort of, what would you do if we ever caught bin Laden? That's the level of, of deliberation uh, that the de federal death penalty is founded on. But try winning that argument. It's not easy. Um, we're finally approaching the time. Uh, there was a wonderful book written um, in 1986 by Frank Zimmering, a brilliant um, uh, professor, uh, scholar of criminal law at Berkeley, called Capital Punishment and the American Agenda. And he asked the question, why is it that, which, which now is even a more extraordinary question, why is it that, that um, all of the Western democracies have abolished the death penalty except for us? Um, and he, he pointed out something very, very striking, which is that when each of the Western democracies uh, voted to abolish the death penalty, the public always supported it. It was not a question that the people turned against the death penalty and then the, uh, and then the um, uh, parliament or the National Assembly or whatever um, voted to ratify the public judgment. It was the other way around. The public supported the death penalty, but the political leadership stood up and abolished it anyway. And then public opinion followed in behind in the years that followed. It's true in France, it's true in England, it's true in Canada, it's true in Australia, you name it. Uh, that's the story that, what, that has happened. Uh, and he asked the question, well, why not in the United States? And one hypothesis is that we live in a country where we pass the buck to the courts. Um, in, in, in England, in Canada, in France, in Italy, in Germany, uh, everyone who voted in the legislature on this issue knew that if they voted for death, there would be guillotinings, there would be hangings, there would be shootings, because the legislature got the last word. In this country, the last word is, um, is handed to the Supreme Court. So politicians can have an easy vote, a symbolic vote. Uh, and. Um, who, if anyone, gets executed will be up to the courts. Of course, the irony is that then when the issue comes to the courts, they say, well, the legislature voted for this. Who are we to interfere? And so no one takes responsibility, and this trickle of executions goes forward. We are at the point when the political leadership must take responsibility for this issue. Whether that is how it's going to end, I don't know. That will be your generation to decide. But that's the point, I think, that we have reached. Thanks. So I just want to say a few things. Uh, first, thank you so much to, to our dean for creating these book panels around faculty books and, and for coming to this event. It's a, an incredibly special thing and a special honor to have people comment and read on one's book. The, the really disappointing thing about this event is that you know, we could and should have had each of our panelists give separate presentations to you for you know, 
multiple hours talking about their work and their careers. And so you just have a, a taste of people who are all too modest, not just Robin, about their own contributions to the, to the law of the death penalty, to the scholarship surrounding the death penalty. Um, making this an, an even more uh, outrageous day for me, Robin invited me to join her for lunch before this panel, and who was there but Joe Giratano, who was sentenced to death in Virginia during the heyday of the death penalty, back when death sentences were regularly imposed, and he was later um, uh, granted partial, granted clemency due to evidence of his innocence. But his case kind of exemplifies some of the themes in my book. Uh, he, he himself exemplifies the defense lawyering effect because he's probably the, the best known and maybe the most talented jailhouse lawyer of all time who himself brought a case that went to the Supreme Court and made some important changes in the death penalty and also resulted in saving the life of a man named Earl Washington who was freed by DNA testing. He's the only death row DNA exoneree in Virginia thanks to Joe Giratano who is now you know, having lunch with, uh, with people in Charlottesville. So that was, that was an amazing surprise. Um, so just a, a few things I wanted to say to encourage you to all ask questions of our panelists. Uh, so um, many of you are in my constitutional law class. Carol Steiker with uh, Jordan Steiker, her, her brother, have written a book, Courting Death, that as constitutional law students, you should read, and not my book, because that, their book is about the Supreme Court and constitutional law and the death penalty. And there are lots of questions that you can ask uh, Carol or our panel generally about this question of which should come first, public opinion or the courts? Is it better for the courts to, to grapple with issues like this or for, for public opinion to do so first? Um, I don't think it spoils in any way uh, Carol's book to read something from the very last page of her book, which I love. It, it's a, a quote, it says, the American road has been marked by rises and descents and sudden curves. And so one of these big questions is, is this freefall, the sudden descent of the death penalty that people hadn't predicted, but which has been well underway for over 15 years now. Is there gonna be some surprise rise now in the future, or, or, or are we really in the, in the end game? Like, I, I, I believe we are, but, but people have been wrong many times before about the American death penalty. Uh, so you also really need to read Evan Mandery's book. His book, Wild Justice, is, is an incredibly engaging read to read a book that, that, that's that fun to read about basically like two Supreme Court cases, the time period before and between them, that's not something we normally want to read about, especially as lawyers. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible story and an incredible time period where the Supreme Court reverses its position in such a fundamental way in such a short period of time. And you just, you have to read that, that book. Uh, and uh, you know, the one question is about that, that, that bizarre episode in the Supreme Court's history. You know, what did the Supreme Court's reversal and, and re-embrace of the death penalty in 1976 actually do to make the death penalty more predictable? If anything, I think the data shows quite well that the death penalty is now imposed in a way that's perhaps more arbitrary now than it was when the Supreme Court initially decided to abolish the, the death penalty. Um, so I, one of the, I think, the, it gave me it was a real honor to be able to quote Robin Conrad's oral arguments in the Glossop case in the chapter that she, she uh, discussed. Her, she gave an, an incredible speech that, that changed the way I thought about lethal injection um, at the invitation of David Brock and others at Washington and Lee a little over a year ago. And you can read that in Washington and Lee Law Review, uh, telling the saga of her work on that lethal injection case and, and another one. Um, 
I strongly encourage you to look at the Death Penalty Information Center DPIC website to just see in a granular way what this data looks like. And one of the pleasures of writing this book was to be able to collect lots of data and hand it to DPIC to, to do things with on their website, which is the repository for such information. Uh, the uh, um, comments by David Brock were, were a real special honor. You know, he, he, he has led the movement towards team-based defense in this country for, for many, many decades. And uh, I've, I don't know if I've ever been as moved just reading and not watching a, a, a closing argument as when I read uh, some of the arguments in the Susan Smith case where he, he discusses the death sentencing procedure conducted on the Mount of Olives in which I, there is to be a, snowed, a stoning of a woman taken in adultery. And Jesus famously says, you know, let those without sin among you be the one to cast the stone first. Uh, and and he, he just tells that story in the death sentencing context in a really compelling way to highlight what mercy means. And so I think there really is a question in this country, and it, in some ways it's a psychological question, as Evan said in his comments. You know, are we in a place in society where death penalty or we're looking at other punishments where you know we have a record number of LWAP sentences, 10 times more than we ever had death sentences in this country. Um, are we in a place where people can empathize more with the victims of crimes or with the defend defendants in criminal cases or to some degree both? Uh, we saw the rise of death sentencing in part because of the ability to empathize with the victims, particularly white victims, in serious murder cases. Uh, we've seen a change where the defense has been able to present mental health evidence and humanize people who have committed some of the most serious murders that you could imagine because most cases there isn't an innocence defense, there is a, is a mental health defense. Um, but the question of whether people can divide their, their empathies, people who are naturally predisposed to think that they might be the victim of crime and to empathize with victims, can they empathize with defendants too? That's, that's really a challenge in, in any society. And whether that's shifting slowly and the politics of criminal justice are shifting, I, I hope that is right. I think there's some real evidence that that's starting to happen in this country. But that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's the challenge going forward. So I'll stop there. I hope you have lots of questions. Let me, let me be the gatekeeper for the questions. We have heard a lot from these wonderful speakers. Um, even when you're old, you learn things when you come to these panels. And I have never heard of the death penalty referred to as the caviar of the criminal justice system. So thank you, Carol, for that. Uh, let's, any questions? If you, if you want to question a particular panelist, let me know. If you want to just ask a question to the panel at large, we can do that. Any questions? Yeah, way in the back. Uh, so, we've talked, a number of the different panelists talked about um, the Prothean issue of the innocence aspect Anyone want to attack that? Well, if somebody's Carol? going to represent Hitler, it's most likely to be you. So. <laughs> no, I want to hear. I want to hear what David has to say about the Hitler. Uh, well, I mean, 
That, um, you know, bin Laden is our Hitler in this country. It's sort of, if we ever got our hands on him, what if they had brought him back? Um, and um, it's, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, the decision about, I mean, I, I guess the simplest way of making the argument is that it is one thing to say that there are people uh, who deserve the death penalty and something far different to determine who those people might be. Or to put it more accurately, we can all look out at the world and say, not all, but many of us can think we can say that person deserves to die. But the question about the death penalty is, can we design a system that will accurately identify those people, not pick out anybody else that is reliable, that won't make mistakes, that, and that can do all of this at an acceptable cost and in a period of time that, seemed, that is not so long that it defeats the whole process. Now, we have the answer to that question, and it's no. Um, and that's the real policy question, but that's a complicated question. And does, the question, does that son of a bitch deserve the death penalty, is an easy question. And that is the challenge. This is why this is a, you know, this is a challenge to democratic self-government. This is a hard question to think through. That is the way I think that it should be thought through. Uh, but you know, good luck having that, um, having it thought through that way in a in a political fight. The fortunate thing is that the issue is no longer salient. That is to say, people no longer vote as they once did to some degree. Uh, on the issue of whether a politician is for or against the death penalty. So I think politicians now have much more freedom than they did to think about the real question, the one I suggest is the, is the only proper one for someone to help, you know, fashioning our laws to ask rather than can we pick out, should lightning strike this person? Well, maybe it should, but that's for God to say. Okay, next. Yeah. Can you speak up a little bit? Sure. You said that you thought the federal abolition of the death penalty would be more effective than a state-by-state -state approach. And I understand that in theory, but I think you talk about that in practice with how hard it is to pass a constitutional amendment with how many states have the death penalty that would need to sign an amendment. Or if we were to rely on an activist Supreme Court, which they tried in the 70s, you saw kind of a backlash against that. And with the court having well, I think constitutional abolition is the only abolition that's going to really eradicate the death penalty nationwide. I, you know, places like Alabama and Texas and Florida, which happen to be the three states that are planning to execute people tonight, the death penalty is not going to become permanently abolished. And I do think that it, you know, we've been on a long trajectory, but I think there's no protection against a kind of backlash against, you know, rising homicide rates. Our homicide rates have fallen for a long time, but if history teaches us anything, they go up and they come down, and then they go up again. So I think the only way to have true nationwide abolition is through a constitutional ban. Is a constitutional ban likely in the near future? 
it's much more doubtful than it was, it would have been had the 2016 national election gone the other way. On the other hand, there's a kind of interesting case, and I don't know if you've been following this, um, a case that uh, uh, former acting Solicitor General Neil Kochel, who was acting Solicitor General in the Obama administration, is the lawyer on, who's, it's a global challenge to the death penalty and cert petition was filed in the Supreme Court, and it's now been um, uh, continued by the court for I think something like eight different conferences. You know that there's someone on the court interested in a case, you know, the court either votes to grant cert or they vote to deny cert or they say let's consider it again at our next conference. And they consider it again at their next one and their next one and their next one and their next one. I think it's been booted like eight times already. It's called Hidalgo versus Arizona. Um, so, you know, there's clearly justices on the court right now who are interested in this. And it could happen, you know, I'm, it, Breyer and Ginsburg have said that they want to abolish the death penalty. Pretty sure Sotomayor would go along with them. And I'm quite sure if there were a fifth vote, in other words, if Justice Kennedy were willing to do it, Justice Kagan's not gonna not, you know, vote with the other guys. Um, so I think the real question then is, is Justice Kennedy ready to abolish the death penalty before he retires? Um, probably not, but not impossible. Now, if he retires before the next presidential election, or if something happens to one of the other justices before the next presidential election, yeah, it's like we're talking about your grandchildren. Um, who may see the abolition of the death penalty by the Supreme Court. I think it will happen. I do think that that is how the death penalty will die in the US. I don't think it's dead yet. I wish that I could agree that the people have spoken, but I think the coup de grace um, will be constitutional abolition, but it may not be for a while. Let's hope so. Any other questions? Yes. Can, can you speak up a little bit? You want to take that one, Robert? Yeah. So um, the question was about alternative methods. And states have, um, Oklahoma did pass a, a law that allows if lethal injection drugs aren't available or if the lethal injection method is found to be unconstitutional to go to a next method. And then the, they have nitrogen gas as an option. Um, Mississippi also has that as an option, and Alabama has introduced it um, to have that as, as an option as well. No state has ever used nitrogen gas. Um, there have been alternatives suggested. And so one of the really bizarre, um, bizarre holdings <coughs> that came out of the Glossop decision from the United States Supreme Court is it is now, if, if a prisoner wants to challenge the way that the state is going to carry out an execution as being cruel and unusual, that prisoner has to give an alternative way that the state can carry out the execution. 
Um, that was not the Supreme Court's precedent when we went up on that case, and they just make it seem like it was. And um, so, so really, the court, I think, is fed up with the lethal injection challenges, um, which is they've now made it impossible for a prisoner to win um, challenges because what lower courts have done, too, is said, well, if you want to challenge this and you propose an alternative. So there was a gentleman in Alabama who proposed firing squad. Um, and he said, that will be less cruel and unusual than if you try to kill me with this drug cocktail that we've seen multiple people being executed and having problems. And the state said, no, we can't do that. That's not, we're not allowed to do that. That's not how our statute works. And the courts were okay with that. Sotomayor wrote a dissent there saying, hey, wait a minute, states can basically insulate them from themselves from any constitutional review because they can write in their statute, this is how an execution is going to be carried out, end all, be all, and if the alternative doesn't match with that, then the, the person hasn't um, set forth an alternative. So it'll be interesting to see, like I said, no state has actually carried out an alternative method um, since challenging uh, lethal injection. There are states that have carried out, um, Virginia has carried out a, an electrocution as, as recent as 2013. The prisoner chose that method. Um, and Utah has carried out um, using the firing squad. That was in 2010, I think, 2010. And again, the prisoner chose that method. And that was an option in the statute. So it'll be interesting to see how, how it'll play out with these other alternatives. But, but right now, there haven't been executions with the alternative methods. Thank you. Other questions? OK, well, can we give our panelists a good round of applause?